Hello, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. This is episode 22, and it is the 21st of August, 2020, here from beautiful Bayside, Melbourne, Australia. This is The Way It Is, the official Bobby Galinsky podcast, and I am your official Bobby Galinsky. We've got a massive show today, tons of stuff. See how quickly I went into that? If you just listened to that for the first time, you thought, wow. This guy's like a racing announcer. Instead of the usual semi-laconic, salubrious, dulcet tones that I prefer to broadcast in, like right now. But it's always a challenge, thinking, how do you open the show? And how do you end the show? Never a problem what's in the show, because I've got voices in my head. Voices in my head. Constantly telling me what to talk about. There isn't 11 minutes that doesn't go by where I think of something and then I just put it in the iPhone or on a piece of paper or something. I think, oh, that's a great idea. And then by the time Friday rolls around, either, yes, this is the best idea ever, or what was I thinking? Absolutely, what was I thinking? Well, today, just to give you a quick rundown, and I hope you've had a great week. I've had a very mixed week. Um, we'll be talking about the Israel-United Arab Emirates new peace talks, the cancellation of the Zarnik death penalty in, of the Boston bomber, the Kafkaesque racism charges that are going around right now, most importantly here in my neighborhood, the potential barbecue ban by Bayside Council. Um, I'm arming up for that one. Cheating, cheating everywhere. And as the Democratic National Convention has just concluded the past few days, and the Republican National Convention will be next week, um, we've just got to look at all the cheating and, and bad behavior on both sides and uh, discuss how that pervades normal life. Uh, touching on the finish of the amazing HBO documentary, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which I started on in last week's show. How the fuck Australian scientists decided that pineapple-eating pigs might be a solution to the COVID virus, the Wu flu, um, which is just a story in itself. The new Oliver Stone biography, which I'm well into, which is amazing. The ridiculous, woke you know, BLM remake of the epic Steve Martin, John Candy film, Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, which is starring Kevin Hart and Will Smith. Because every film that was good has to now be remade with black characters. The Attila's Gym fiasco in New Jersey, which intrigues me massively. How people trying to do the right thing, trying to feed their families, are just being excoriated and crushed by the government. Ratings on PodTrack, how this podcast has just been rocketing up the charts only because of you. Only because of you. And uh, some great shout-outs talking about the greatest unsung coach in sporting history, Franz Stomfel. And a lot of humor. A lot of humor, because we've got we've to have some fun. I had a very non-humorous day. The the other day, I'd been, uh, as you know from you know previous shows, I'm very weight conscious and very vain. And uh, although my weight's been good, and uh, I do 
heaps of physical exercise, seemed to be there was a bit of a tummy growing. And um, it was determined that there was just way too much sugar going in me because I've got such a sweet tooth, as you know, as I review chocolates about every week. So I thought, okay, got to cut the uh, calories a bit, the, the sweets calories, the bad calories. So um, regrettably, I kind of overdid it and went from, you know, several thousand calories of snack calories per day to like almost nil and went into huge sugar withdrawal and coupled with heavy exercise, got some massive vertigo. Couldn't even, couldn't even sit. I was about ready to pass out. Um, and I've had vertigo in the past before. Uh, when I was in London, it, it struck me. But that was not from sugar withdrawal. That was from six solid weeks of heavy drinking and, you know, huge desserts and eating and stuff like that on holiday. Um, but I uh, was a bit scared that I'd had some bad karma coming back on me for bad jokes. But no, I'm here. I'm back. Now, it is raining. It is 12 degrees. It is Melbourne, but we did have a bit of sunshine, but we got some serious thunderstorms coming. But uh, we like that. Nothing like having the fireplace on and, you know, just crackling fire and it's just pouring rain outside. Got the slippers on, got a nice cup of herbal tea or a beautiful skinny latte and just doing some reading. It is one of the glorious, simple pleasures of winter, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, I think when um, my wife and I were making a list of dream things in a home or apartment, a fireplace was definitely one of them, because in Melbourne you get a really good chance. But, but, Bayside Council, we live in Bayside Council, which is a fantastic council for a couple of things that councils are supposed to do. They pick up the trash, they pick up the recyclables, they keep the streets mega repaired. There are no potholes in our, in our area. If there's a pothole, it's gone in 60 seconds. And having grown up in Sioux City, Iowa, which has just been a pothole since 1953, there has never not been construction there, especially on I-29. Those of you that grew up there know what I'm talking about. It's just an incredible... Either bad construction or total criminal rort from the concrete and uh, um, you know construction companies, not including Sioux City Foundry, I don't think. But uh, unbelievable. So Bayside, we've got the best streets. Streets are always paved, everything like that. All the parking meters work, but we've got a parking permit since we live here. You know, don't have to don't have to pay the park, which is a nice thing at the beach or the foreshore. And, you know, all the little trees are trimmed and everything's peachy keen. However, in the little newsletter that Bayside sends out, there were a couple of things that, you know, you kind of skim through at projects going on in the neighborhood. It's uh, It can be a little bit of a twee area and it is somewhat of a, I don't say this as an elitist, even though I am, but uh, I like to think I'm egalitarian. More than that, but uh, sometimes we have to embrace embrace our, our core elitism. And you got to say that there's some people here that just say they don't like any changes and they want things their way and they're aged. They're a little bit too well-heeled. And there have been three, three, count them, three complaints 
about the odor of barbecue and wood-burning fireplaces in this rather large collective suburb. Now, if there were 3,000, I'd say, hmm, the populace is a bit upset. The natives are restless. But three complaints, and now Bayside Council, which banned smoking on all the beaches in the outdoor area. Now, I don't smoke. I've never smoked. I actually smoked three cigarettes in college at University of Colorado. But being allergic to tobacco, that, that didn't end well. And I could never figure out how to hold the cigarette to look cool. Do you hold it between, you know, your thumb and your forefinger, that kind of, you know, Nazi uh, SS, you know, or papers or Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart look? Or do you hold it between uh, your middle finger and your forefinger, that kind of Steve McQueen thing. I could never quite figure that out. And uh, it didn't matter because I coughed to death like, you know, uh, a woo flu fatality. So I never smoked. But I do sympathize for people that are spending 20 to $39 a pack for cigarettes here, of which more than half of that is taxes, but yet they're not allowed to smoke. So if we're collecting the taxes and they're not allowed to smoke, it's a bit hypocritical. And there's a lot of groundswell support for not even let people smoking in their own apartments now because the smoke might waft up the balcony to someone else. It's just, you know what? And the government's never going to negate the taxes because that's like bazillions of dollars coming in. Anyway, neither here nor there. People can say, oh, my, my brother died of cancer from smoking. Well, you know what? His choice. He smoked. He died. Sorry. Uh, the taxes helped. But Bayside Council, which banned all smoking on the beaches and everything like that, which I do not mind from the fact that I don't like the smell of smoke and don't like cigarette butts everywhere, wants to ban barbecues and fireplaces and wood-burning stoves. Now, for those of you that are not Australian, there is nothing more Australian than a backyard barbecue. Yeah, mate. He put another shrimp on the barbie. Get in there, mate. Yeah, barbecue. Yeah. It's going. Get in there. And of course, those of you in the U.S., 4th of July, can you imagine banning barbecues on the 4th of July? Now, if you're in the midst of bushfires, banning open fires does make sense. And we have had barbecues banned in the summer here when it's like 42 degrees, which is like 110 U.S., and there's been bushfires everywhere. That's that's just common sense. But banning barbecues and banning indoor fireplaces, you cannot imagine the letter that I'm just have been compelled that's going to be written to council on that one. I'm just I'm just waiting for the right time. I've cut till the 28th of the month, so we'll fill you in on that. I mean, Paul Hogan said, you know, put another shrimp on the barbie. He didn't say um, put some prawns in the oven, the reverse induction oven, fan forced. I'm going to be grilling this afternoon, as a matter of fact. I am. Another thing that is the death of things, the death of things figuratively, as you've probably read quite prominently in the news around, around the world, as we come up to the anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombings and the uh, lovely fundamentalist Islamic um, subhuman Jokar Zarnev. Sorry, there's a bit of a pause there in a in a in a splice. I was just getting into 
taking apart, um, well, who wouldn't want to take apart Islamic fundamentalists who uh, only want to do the civilized harm. But my alarm on the phone went off and I was going out to grab myself some lunch and lo and behold, my wife had made uh, some beautiful homemade pizza. So I had to kind of put this on pause. I was very hungry. And uh, melted butter, garlic on some pita like souvlaki bread, uh, thin bread, and then super Don's hot Hungarian salami, a little bit of arrabbiata sauce, some chili peppers, some chili flakes, a little bit of oil dribbled on it, body of Cortano, the best olive oil anywhere, and uh, just a, a little bit of basil, and uh, flatbread, flatbread pizza, so delicious. And I don't have anything against hot Hungarian salami, even though the Hungarians were complicit with the Germans and uh, like to wipe out the Jews. I love their salami. See, there's no there's no cancel culture there, no reparations or anything like that. So uh, I embrace I embrace the salami, and uh, oh, so good, so spicy hot. So I'm back, so I'm back, and regrettably, so is the uh, sentencing case for Jokar Zarnev. The Zarnev family, which immigrated to the U.S., were given everything, as all immigrants are, and just absolutely shat on the U.S. and human beings by uh, the two boys, the brothers, killing, you know, many people and injuring 260 others in the Boston bombings, putting putting a, a pressure cooker bomb next to a child. This is so fuck up. But... Here you go. That was uh, seven years ago. And a federal appeals court just recently overturned the jury's death sentence and ordered a new trial to determine whether Zarnev, now 27, should live or die. And this, of course, brought the indelible horror of this afternoon back in uh, 2015. So it's brought that uh, haunting memory back to all the families of the people that survived and who lost, lost family, or just absolutely maimed. The overturning of the death sentence, and by the way, I'm reading from the Boston Globe article by David Abel, Laura Cromaldi, and Stephen Neer. Um, the federal trial, uh, which was, of course, judges appointed by Obama, which kind of says it all if you look at um, right-to-life type situations on death sentence. Obama was very much against the death sentence, which was his right, and all the judges that he appointed were too. So why spend millions keeping this guy alive for, um, you know, the next, you know, 50, 60, 70 years that he lives and letting people know that? Why not just put him to death? But of course, you know, you can't have a death penalty. You can't take a life. Now, I do respect the opinions of those that think an eye for an eye is no good. And, quote, unquote, one of the survivors, who was quite maimed, said, who has the right to take a life? Well, you know what? We have the right to take a life. He's entitled to his opinion. I'm not going to name call him. That's, that's, that's where his um, sole justification is. But what is the justification of keeping a subhuman a virus like this alive, who was found guilty. It was, you know, indisputable evidence. It's not like, oh, it's it's doubtful. Um, just get rid of him. There are, there are just 
human beings, and I, I barely can qualify them as human beings, that deserve. People say, oh, but he'll think about it the rest of his life. No, he won't. He'll be watching TV and exercising and doing whatever, and then he'll become adjusted to that life in prison, and then he'll probably write a book, and God, God no. But it, uh, you've got half the people that think, let it go and let him rot in jail, and then you've got a lot of the other people that are just hoping for his death, that the only way they're going to have closure is if he dies. So in a 182-page ruling, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit found that the trial court judge, George O'Toole Jr., quote-unquote, did not meet the standard of fairness while presiding over jury selection, finding he failed to screen jurors sufficiently for bias. A core promise of our criminal justice system is that even the very worst among us deserves to be fairly tried and lawfully punished. Well, that's true. Even the worst person deserves a trial. But why do we have to have these appeals over and over and over again? And you know what? These appeals will go on forever. And there are so few executions in the country. Um, it's just a no-win system. The American legal system, as good as it is, just it makes me deeply uncomfortable. And I do disagree. I do disagree with the premise that if you execute one innocent man, then that's wrong than executing a thousand guilty ones. But that's just my opinion. So we'll see how that all plays out. See how that all plays out. And it's it's kind of like the cheating. It's the cheating in the, the system. It's the cheating by the the, the the judges. It's the cheating by the it's the cheating by the uh, attorneys who just want fees and want this to go on on and on and on. It's like cheating in sport. It's cheating in in politics, which both in the US, both sides are accusing the other of right now as the conventions go back to back this week and next week. And yes, they both do. And you know where I stand on who I think is, you know, worse than the other. Um, the hypocritical, when they go low, we go high. Well, that isn't the most hypocritical statement um, I've ever heard in my life. And I've heard a lot of them. But cheating, great article on cheating by Seth Godin. If you don't subscribe to Seth Godin's newsletter, you could. I shouldn't say you should because you should never should on yourself but you could he's a bit of a philosopher and a marketer and uh every day something comes in from him and about oh once every couple of weeks something's amazing and just the timing of this is quite perfect he talked about cheating this morning there's really only two ways to approach cheating we either don't cheat or we cheat when we can get away with it the posture of our side doesn't cheat is the belief in the validity of the game itself. It's a statement of moral authority, a promise of consistency and valor. It respects the process. However, the posture of cheat if you can is the belief in the ends at any cost. It degrades the system because if everyone cheats, then there is no system left. Cheaters often brag about their exploits because they want to normalize them. Sophisticated competitors, the ones who really want to win, underestimating and understand that cheating destroys the very thing they set out to do. Because once cheating is normalized, 
the winner is the person who had the guts to cheat the most and destroy the system, not the one who deserved to win. Being against cheating doesn't mean you don't want to compete. It means that you do. In every community, on every team, there are people who believe that they o- their only chance they've got is to cheat. Our systems persist only when peers in the community step up and insist that the cheater stop. Because being on a team that wins by cheating is ultimately self-defeating. Boy, does that apply these days. That does apply these days. Now, are you worried about Wu flu? Are you worried about COVID? Are you a scientist? I bet some of you out there took science in uh, high school and then in college or university. And there, there's there's got to be some scientists out there. I know there's people from, from all walks of life listening to this podcast as it rockets up the charts. Regrettably, it's not in the pod, pod news top 20 podcasts of the world. But now, from my humble beginnings, I'd like to get into the top 100. We'll see what happens over the next year or two, unless I get absolutely bored of this or something goes sideways. However, if you're a scientist, I remember there was like a real scientist in my high school. We had a guy named Scott Kaufman. This guy, you know, you look in the yearbook, you know, most likely to have kids, most likely to, you know, whatever. This is, you know, most likely to cure cancer or invent the neutron bomb. Scott Kaufman was a scientist. And I believe now he is a scientist somewhere. But somewhere here in the bowels of the labs in Australia, where we are just riddled with with the virus, which isn't going to go away, and like measles and mumps and even plague and leprosy will be around forever, so you can't eradicate it, even though some of the people here think we can't open up the country or the borders until it is eradicated, which we covered in the last show. Um, And those people go into the uh, Moron of the Month Award. But um, most importantly, most importantly, somewhere in one of these dark labs somewhere, someone was doing an experiment and watching pigs eat pineapples and realizing that pigs do not carry nor transmit the COVID virus. So I'm sure in one of the meetings that came up, they were doing, oh, excuse me, Colin or Digby, are you testing the R256294 uh, genome, you know, quirk fourth to the third power to see if we've had any results? Uh, and, you know, Digby might have said, and eh, now, Professor, but, you know, why don't we try pineapples? What? Why don't we try pineapples? Pigs eat pineapples. They don't get the COVID. Well, there's no such thing as a bad idea or a stupid idea. The only idea or or question that is stupid is the one that is unasked. And lo and behold, Australia announced on the news yesterday morning in the wee hours that we are on the verge of an experimental meaning no guarantees, experimental virus fighter, which will be a nasal spray made from pineapples so that the virus that gets into your respiratory system cannot make it down and reproduce, killed by pineapples. So 
I'm going to stick some pineapples up my nose next time I go walking, just, you know, for the advent of when this virus gets happening. Plus, I like the smell of pineapple, and I do like pina coladas and walking in the rain. But, um, fuck, I hate that song. I, that just brought me back to one of the nine worst songs ever on the radio. I, I can't even go back and sing it for you. It's 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 going to make me upset. But um, I do like pina coladas, and I do like walking in the rain. I just hate that song. So there you go. And then, of course, Australia will make it for everyone here free, and about 30% of the people here who are virulent anti-vaxxers. I love the, uh, you know, non-sequitur hyperbole of the whole thing. Won't have it, and... Um, We'll have to have some serious repercussions for them. Then if we do patent it, or patent it, as we say here, should we share this vaccine with the rest of the world? Like we gave away the black box, like we gave away the uh, um, Wi-Fi and so many other amazing Australian inventions. I think we should sell it to the rest of the world. Make a little bit of money, for God's sakes. All that money that the U.S. was going to give to the WHO, they can just give us for uh, the vaccine. Everything has a cost, you know. Why not? Why not? So that's kind of good news. And uh, But you know what? I'm sure there'll be someone there, that someone there, someone everywhere that would call out, oh, you've, you've developed this. You've got to give it to the rest of the world. You can't just, can't just keep it and hide it and hoard it and sell it. That'd be capitalistic. Even though you might have spent billions developing it, you got to, you got to give it away. It's just like all the businesses everyone has. They all stole. They all stole from the oppressed. No, it's uh, not a Kafkaesque racism, denial, capitalistic, socialistic, neurons manifest equalizer. It is commerce. Commerce. And that's what's killing me lately. Not killing me. Nothing kills me. Whatever kills you makes you stronger. It irritates me is the racism cancel culture screaming going on now that basically you know there was a there was a girl thanks to steve fagenbaum in uh, i'm gonna tampa with you florida for this there was some nine-year-old girl who was on dance moms an alumnus named maddie ziegler who's 17 now when she was nine said something on social media that was horrible i guess when she was nine so now she's got to apologize and do the apology to her um because she said something when she was nine. Um, if you deny being racist, of course, then you, just by denying it, you must be racist. It's like saying you're not a witch. Well, you must be burned as a witch. And then if, of course, you you float, you are made of wood and you are a witch and have to be burned again. Or if you sink, oh, then you were innocent, but it's too late. And it's strange to me how two of the most polarized opposite groups gays, lesbians, LGBTQ, transsexuals, and all of that have aligned with the Muslim fundamentalist groups, groups that would throw them off buildings and kill them in most Arabic countries. Yes, most fundamentalist Islamic societies, Iran, Iraq, even in uh, Jordan, Lebanon, which is pseudo-westernized um, and is a bit smaller the past few weeks, uh, thanks to our <clears throat> Beirut um, renovation program. 
they throw gays off buildings. There's a million videos on it. So how do these two groups come together to say that America is unfair? Because it's the coalition of the very willing hard left now coming together to try and take away any freedoms that we have. That, that is one thing that I've been noticing over the past few months, how groups that would never associate have come together and oppose peace and oppose commerce and oppose all the things that make Western civilization great. Find us guilt, guilty for them and want to destroy it. It's a bit of an anomaly. I don't know if you've noticed that. And um, speak, speaking of all that, that's weird with, with COVID too, because it seems... People argue, and in fact, in fact, this is very, very important. In a uh, Franklin Templeton Gallup poll that just came out Wednesday, on average, Americans believe that people aged 55 and older account for just over half of the total COVID-19 deaths. Americans think people over 55 account for over half of all the deaths. Well, the actual figure is 92%. Americans also believe in the same poll, aged 44 and younger account for about 30% of total deaths. The actual figure is 2.7%. And Americans overestimate the risk of death from COVID-19 for people aged 24 and younger by a factor of 50. And they think the risk for people aged 65 and older is half of what it actually is. 40% versus 80%. There's so much fake news and so much misconception that it's it's hard that anybody can believe anything that that that's going on and and related into that you know mid east bizarrity that i was just talking about and fundamentalist muslims uh the amazing peace program of israel having an alliance in forming negotiations with the united arab emirates arguably the most westernized of the arabic countries is a fantastic start to the peace process that President Trump has fomented. Now, of course, that has raised the ire of every other major fundamentalist country where Iran and Iraq now want to absolutely destroy not only Israel, as they always have wanted to, but now the United Arab Emirates, and uh, which is the most commerce-related and uh, wealthiest in trading nations of the, of the uh, Arabic countries. So go figure. Yes, there are some people that need to be bombed back into the Stone Age, and no amount of civilization is ever going to come to them. I'm sorry. I've got my list, and in my lifetime, we hope to achieve that. But in speaking of history in a lifetime, let's go all the way back on this day to 1264. Because if you didn't think there were still problems way back then in the early days, the good old days, I remember a lot of people reminiscing, oh, 1264, fucking great year, loved loved August. Well, on this day, 1264, Kublai Khan accepted the surrender of his younger brother, Arik Boke, at Xanadu. Xanadu! That wasn't a bad movie, really. I do like Olivia Newton-John, one of our... One of our True Australians, true, true gifts, true treasures, national treasures. At the end of the Mongol Civil War, and for those of you that are not historians, those of you that are not historians, Kublai Khan was the Mongolian emperor and founder of the Yuan dynasty. Then, a century later, on this same day, 
1560, Tycho Brahe became interested in astronomy. And Tycho, as you may know, is a prominent lunar impact crater located in the southern lunar highlands, named after the eponymous astronomer. Let's fast forward another century, 1689. The Battle of Dunkeld fought in Scotland between supporters of King James VII of Scotland and troops of William of Orange. Hmm. Seen a few movies on that. Then in 1841, John Hampton patented the Venetian blind. I'm sure that he wanted some type of louver that cats could press down and know what you did out there and see what you did out there. So uh, John Hampton foresaw that. Must have been a cat lover. 1911, crime. The Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre by Vincenzo Perugia. And it was recovered two years later in 1913. I have to say the Mona Lisa would be to me, and I have seen it in real, not unlike Haley's Comet. It underimpressed me. Maybe it had been so hyped up since I was a child of like, this is one of the most amazing pictures of all time. And uh, I'm intrigued by it. I'm a bit mesmerized by it, but I'm not blown away by it. 1938, big day in Italy. I have been practicing my Duolingo. Italy barred all Jewish teachers in public and high school. And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to have smart, educated people teaching your students? Makes sense to me. Um, 1942. And I love the Italians and all things Italian, but that, that's um, when Mussolini, um, you know, had Hitler derangement syndrome on a good way. 1942. Walt Disney's animated movie Bambi based on the book by Felix Salton, was released. Who here my age did not see Bambi and was traumatized by the mother being killed in the woods by the hunter? When my mom took me to see that, that fucked me up majorly. And probably why, even though I do love guns and I love target shooting and things like that, or shooting at Antifa people, or uh, we don't have any guns down here, so they've taken that fun away. I just will never go hunting. Can't hurt a... Can't hurt any, any animals. Not not nice. Not nice. 1959. Hawaii on this day became the 50th U.S. state. Hawaii, one of our favorite places to holiday. Absolutely love Hawaii. Love uh, Maui. Um, the Hyatt Regency in Maui is fantastic. Four seasons also. In Honolulu, the Halakalani. That is our absolute favorite hotel. In fact, the Halakalani really harkens back to the old 1950s and 60s, um, you know, beautiful island pre, just right uh, right when it became, became a state. However, Hawaii is also known for producing one of the nine dumbest politicians in the world, senators in the history, and that's Maisie Hirano. Um, you, you can't get much dumber than that. 1962, my Sioux City friends growing up would know this. Vern Gagne on this date beats Mr. M, also known as Dr. X, in Minnesota to become the NWA champ, the National Wrestling Association champ, 1962. And three years later, on this same day, how can this be? The Crusher beat Mad Dog Vachon in St. Paul to become NWA champ. And that was the last time anything worth fuck all happened in Minnesota of any goodness. That state's just finished. It's, you know, Mogadishu with snow. Now, 1985. I love this because I love the macabre. 
The New York Lotto paid $41 million to three winners. It was the first time multiple winners had won over $30 million. Incidentally, the numbers were 14, 17, 22, 23, 30, and 47. But what's most interesting to me is the three winners were all couples, and all three couples were bankrupted and divorced by 1989, less than four years later, and one of them suicided on the anniversary of having won the lotto money. So be careful what you wish for. There's a documentary I want to see. So anybody out there thinking, what's a good premise for a doco? Go after that one. Be a little tough to get interviews, but it'll be amazing. 1987, another amazing film. And I hate musicals. You know that. And I hate theater. No, wait, I'm not supposed to say hate. I abhor musicals. And I am absolutely repulsed by the theater. But I loved Dirty Dancing. Who didn't love Dirty Dancing? Directed by Emil Adelino with Patrick Swayze, the late Patrick Swayze. He was so cool. And Jennifer Grey. Jennifer Grey, a very unlikely leading lady, but she was fantastic. And I must say, my wife and I went to see the stage show a couple years ago, and only because the music is so beautiful and so uplifting, it was, it was good. So there's always an exception for things. Patrick Swayze, what a legend. And 2001, here it comes. How you remind me. The single released by Nickelback came out. Nickelback, the band everyone loves to hate. Name all the members of Nickelback. No one came. No one can. Chad Kroger. That's the only one I know. And that's the one that everybody knows. Let's move on to sport. I love this segment of the show because people think back and it sets the date and sets the time. And you think, fuck, I was there. I know a lot of you are thinking, wow, I remember when Kublai Khan got his brother the surrender back in, you know, 1264. You know, those of you that are in rest homes that haven't died yet from the COVID. But in 2004... American super swimmer, super fish, Michael Phelps, won his sixth gold medal of the Athens Olympics, even though he doesn't swim the final of the men's 4 by 100 Michael Phelps, who was so vilified, so vilified because someone sneaked a photo of him having a bong, you know, who hasn't had a bong in their life from time to time, other than my wife, you know, um, I think that was the beginning of cancel culture. Try and find someone that's nigh perfect and and take them down. 2014, one of my favorite things. On this day, an Israeli airstrike in Rafah killed Mohammed Abu Shamala, Raid al-Altar, and Mohammed Bartum, three of Hamas's top commanders. Every time there's an Israeli airstrike that kills you know, a bunch of Hamas people, it's it's like winning the lotto for me. It's oh, it's fantastic. I wish those things were on the front page of the paper every day. That just relaxes me. So beautiful. 2017, the destroyer USS John McCain, one of the most misnamed destroyers ever, collided with an oil tanker near Singapore, leaving 10 missing and 5 injured. Well, it should have been a train because there wasn't any worse of a train wreck in the Senate than John McCain. Anyway... Um, who may have been a hero in Vietnam, but was a zero when he came back. Um, I'm not sure he should rest in peace. I'm thinking about that one. I don't think so. Don't rest in peace, John. Rest nervously. You were one of our Republican traitors, and I'm still just a bit angry. Well, 2017, Johnson & Johnson ordered to pay 
417 million U.S. to women who developed ovarian cancer after using their talc-based products. Now, I don't know what these women were doing with this talcum powder or how much they were using, but that seems to be an exorbitant amount of money and perhaps an exorbitant amount of talcum powder. But anyway, I've got a bunch of that baby powder and I've been putting it down there, obviously in a different organ than the women would have every day. And, uh, you know... I don't want to get cancer, but I want some of that $417 million. We'll see what happens. I'm checking it every day. Uh, certainly not any, not any chafing going on. And in 2019, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, on this day, was named the highest paid actor for a second year in a row, earning $89.4 million. Whew. Wow. Big bucks. Big bucks. And still staying in the entertainment industry, which has been so good for me for so many years, but has so turned into a absolute insane identity politics situation. Many of you might have seen that prominent producer Arnold Beckstein announced that, quote unquote, we have an obligation to remake white privileged films. I had to read that, read that. 56 times, white privileged films that don't represent normality in the U.S. and world as all black cast and production team features. It's our duty and your duty to see them. As he announced the remake of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles with Will Smith and Kevin Hart. Now, if that isn't the most reverse fucked up thinking I've ever thought, oh, here people go, he's racist. No, I love Kevin Hart. I love Will Smith. I love all their movies. But when a producer says that every film that was predominantly cast with white characters was white privileged and didn't represent the U.S. and the world, it was a comedy. It was a movie. Do you think black people went away from that? Is that so insulting to think that black people, who are no different than any people, Asian, brown, whatever, you can't judge anyone's mentality by their skin color. That's the most ridiculous thing in the world. It's so denigrating to even think I think the black people went away from that film going, oh, I would have laughed if it hadn't been John Candy, late John Candy, um, someone who should have cut his carbs, and uh, Steve Martin. Now, what, are they going to bring up the zeitgeist of it as kind of a BLM, trains, planes, and automobiles? I would suggest that they do in that case, so that um, instead of taking a taxi like Steve Martin and John Candy, they steal the taxi, they carjack it, and then they burn it, um, run over a couple of people along the way, older white people that are crossing the street in the 77th block in Lexington in New York, uh, and then loot the stores that they go to and then burn the motel that they stay in together. That would bring in the zeitgeist of the far left and BLM the way I see it today. I had to reread that producer statement 56 times that it is beyond, it is beyond that people, it's all about identity politics now. All about identity politics. Now, there'll be a uh, a link on my site that the most amazing 30 seconds you'll ever see is, listen, I'm not touching the uh, Democratic National Convention or the Republican National Convention for a couple of weeks till it's all over. It's going to be nice here. But Don Lemon, who I won't call one of the dumbest people in media, just one of the most ridiculously mean people, uh, victim people in media, and April Ryan who is a White House correspondent now with CNN. They're both they're both black. 
and uh, they were having a vitriolic argument on CNN, and I've got the uh, link for you, with two white guys. They're all four, you know, part of the woke group, and they're arguing about Kamala Harris, or Kamala Harris, however you want to pronounce it, um, because it's racist if you pronounce it the wrong way, about how black she is and how she should declare herself as an Indian or a Jamaican, and she can't be a black American because her parents weren't, and dis discussing the blackness and who was really the black American um, versus just African. And these are two blacks going crazy on it. And there's two white guys, two super woke white guys looking, and you've just got to see the video. They won't touch this with a 10-foot pole. They're looking, and, they, and they're, you can hear them saying, I ain't fucking getting in this conversation. It is, why can't it just be, she's an American, she's a candidate. Judge her on her skills and talents or what you like or don't like. But how black does she have to be? Where does she have to be? You know, that is like, that is one of the big arguments I have in Judaism, whereas someone who's a convert, a woman who's a convert, that um, especially in reform and not, not the Orthodox that has a child, the child is ostensibly not pure Jewish because the Orthodox um, rabbinical rabbis say, no, um, got to go through this whole whole thing to be true Jew. You just can't convert to Jew. It's like there's levels of Judaism. So any time that, you know, a really heavy Orthodox Jew tells me I'm not Jew enough, um, you know, what's what's that? It's like you're not black enough or something like that. Who who does that type of thing? So, you know, I get my back up. I want to punch them. I want to absolutely hurt them. But then, of course, I'd be arrested. But it would be Jew on Jew crime. And that's a very, very obscure level genre of violence that's never really been exhibited anywhere. Who can really deal with Jew on Jew crime? <laughs> which, which is the whole, you just got to stop it. <laughs> Oh, that just totally freaks freaks me out. And speaking of identity politics, it's it's even gone into the woo flu. I cannot believe it's only men and women getting the coronavirus. Have you ever even thought about that? There are zero reports from the other seventy genders that are supposedly out there. <laughs> that's something that's really got to be solved for me. We're going to segue into entertainment now. We're going to segue into wonderful entertainment. I have been reading a beautiful book. Beautiful, be a beautiful, beautiful book, more beautiful than a piece of coal. And it's Oliver Stone's new autobiography called Chasing the Light. Oliver Stone, who needs to only be known as the director of Platoon, and that gets you through most of it, and um, the author of Scarface and dozens of fantastic films and director of so many controversial U.S. figure, former Vietnamese soldier, um, a fantastic talent and a very divisive talent. Uh, one of his most underrated films was Salvador, by the way, with Jimmy Woods, James Woods, big fan. So the book goes through everything, his massive cocaine addiction, his battling to get into Hollywood, his battles with Spielberg and the way he was kind of treated by some of the elite. And um, it is an invigorating read, an absolutely invigorating read. And plowed into that, because we've just wrapped up the HBO mini-series, all kind of, you know, one-season series, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, I told you about last week, which is the story of the Golden State Killer, the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, um, and all these other nom de plume that uh, he went as before he was 
just most recently caught after the death of Michelle McNamara, the writer and crime writer who married uh, comedian Patton Oswald and doggedly, doggedly pursued this guy. And regrettably, a little bit of a spoiler here, um, he wasn't caught until after her death and the book came out posthumously. And the cause of her death and so many things is related to this. I'd rather you see the series and watch it. It's so beautiful because the documentary series has the narration from her after death by by another voice artist. But you believe she's narrating after her death. You go through the development of this, her early years, how she met Patton Aswalt and how she got obsessed with this horrific killer, raped over 50 people, killed several, and how he graduated from just a peeping Tom to a serial killer. And it's it's quite fascinating. As I said last week, it really freaked me out. And uh, um, I think I'm a pretty brave guy. Oh, actually, I'm a coward. But I'm a pretty brave guy after a few drinks. And uh, I got the baseball bat, the Louisville Slugger, the 34, right next to the bed, just in case somebody gets through our 70 alarms and starts coming towards the bedroom. But the other night after watching the show late, I heard something that was probably just the refrigerator and the ice maker going, and I bolt up. What was that? Just the ice maker, honey. Go back to sleep. Okay. Okay. Be a good sport. Be a good sport. Go back to sleep. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Yes, and it's what is your podcaster wearing? Well, I woke up kind of feeling a bit shitty. I still hadn't felt great since the uh, vertigo on Wednesday, and I was actually going to have a confession and post a photo of me just like doing this in just the worst possible clothes. But, but, early in the morning, the bell rang, and it was DHL with a little something that I'd ordered online while bored at 70% off from Bloomingdale's. And it's an amazing, you know, I was going to say that, Rick Owens' dark shadow white hoodie, which is so cool. And Rick Owens is the hotness. As Nathan Heller in Vogue magazine reported some time ago, he is the Rimbaudian iconoclast. He's no wonderkind. He was 40 when he first showed up on the runway, and he conducts his affairs with the patience and equipose of an old hand. Quote, to me, graciousness is paramount, Rick said. Last November, he hosted 120 people for a warm familial Thanksgiving dinner. He's originally from Porterville, California, partially Hispanic, mixed family. In conversation, he is raw and courtly at the same time. A typical greeting, I'm just going to go piss, then we can promenade. His father was very confrontational and an intellectual bully. His mother, a peacemaker who wanted to make everyone comfortable. Rick says he sees himself as being caught in between. There's a huge adolescent side to me that I can't grow out of, but I feel there's a way to talk about flexibility. I'm proposing other options for beauty, but it's a proposal, not a manifesto. He is uh, known as the king of the dark shadow street, street gear, and 94.3% of his stuff is for younger people to look very street cool. I like to think I look street cool at 67, but this is a very conservative, very groovy white hoodie, which I have on with my black helmet laying 
track pants, which is my pretty much my uniform in black and white Y3 sneakers, which you've seen many, many times. But I'm glad I got out of the out of the absolute nano void that I was in, saved by DHL once again. And what did I drink last night? Well, last night was a lovely, lovely drink. It was a 2010 Dog Point Vineyard Pinot Noir. Now, Dog Point Vineyard is based in Marlboro in NZ. Now, New Zealand is known for a lot of things. One of them is amazing natural beauty and beautiful wines. And the Marlboro region is a wonderful wine region. And I've got to put out a shout to James Morrow. James Morrow is a uh, American expat journalist living here in Australia who has a show called The Outsiders on Sky News. Great show and uh, well worth a watch, uh, I think, every Sunday morning. And also writes in the Wall Street Journal and uh, is on a couple of the TV stations. And uh, he's kind of like a slightly younger not as groovy, but way smarter version of me. But he's well worth watching. And uh, hi there, James. And uh, he had a photo on his Instagram of the most beautiful, like, prime rib and potatoes and a glass of dog point uh, Pinot Noir. And, oh, that's just like my favorite. Talk about meat and potatoes. Prime rib and roasted potatoes. And I got so inspired that... um we just decided to put that in our menu, and I had to have that 2010 Pinot Noir, which I actually had in the cupboard. Now, it ain't cheap. It's between 30 and 40 bucks, closer to the 40 side uh, for a bottle here in Australia, but it, it tastes like a $100 bottle of wine. It's astonishing. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks, James. And James is a very cool guy to follow on Twitter and social media and Instagram. Uh, very erudite and well thought out and uh, very good take on life. A, a softer version of conservatism, well thought out. He, he thinks before he posts. I've got, I've got to work on that. Think before you post. Hmm. Think before you post. Now, completely out of left field, of quite a few people messaged me and said, tell me more about this Franz Stomfel guy that you flagged in the uh, film Champion that Sally McLean directed, that I executive produced, that's in post-production, um, because not many people have heard of them, although a lot of people had heard of Roger Bannister, who he coached to the first sub-four-minute mile, the anniversary of which was a couple of weeks ago. And just to tell you a little bit about this guy, which is an astonishing story. He was born Franz Ferdinand, not Franz Ferdinand like the band, Franz Ferdinand Leopold Stamfel in Vienna in the 18th of November, 1913. And he is known as one of the world's leading athletics coaches of the 20th century. And he pioneered a scientific system of interval training, which became very popular with sprint and middle distance athletes. He was the Tony Robbins of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. He got people to just mind meld and visualize and visualize that, yes, if you can do it in under four minutes, then if you see it, you will believe it. If you believe it, you will you will see it. He had an astonishing life. Um, in June of 1940, he was actually on his way to Canada, getting out of World War II, uh, on the liner ship SS Arendora Star with a host of other prisoners of war. And in the middle of the North Sea, a German U-boat torpedoed the ship, and within 30 minutes, the ship was flooded with water, sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. Now, this guy is already a prisoner of war. In 1937, he had sensed the rise of Hitler and having, you know, 
been banned after refusing to obey instructions from Austrian Olympic officials. He left Austria for England. Then when Hitler marched into Austria, uh, the British government demanded he leave the country unless he show a unique skill. And having taught skiing back in his homeland, he pitched AAA officials to coach their athletes, earning him a job in Northern Ireland for a while. But then uh, he was transported to Canada and then Australia. And he went on a hunger strike to protest at his confinement when he was interned as an enemy alien. But anyway, getting back to the the, the ship there. So the ship sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. It's the North Sea. It's fucking cold. And to survive, Stompel forced a steel plate aside to get to the surface and then jumped into the freezing cold oil slick sea. And for eight hours, he swam, warding off shock from the cold and struggling before a rescue boat sighted him. Well, later, even the friendly Germans and Austrians were arrested and, uh, you know, while hundreds died in the disaster, but those who survived were shipped back to Britain, interned, and then shipped once again to Australia on the HMT Denera, and there Stomfel was sent to an internment camp in Hay. And to ease the desperation plaguing the prisoners, he organized athletics, boxing, wrestling, and football matches. So it wasn't until 1954, you know, 14 years later, that he assisted Roger Bannister to the first four-minute sub-four-minute mile at Oxford, and then was brought over to Australia by Sir Frank Beaurepaire, as in Beaurepaire's tires. And at the 1956 Olympic Games in Melbourne, Stomfel coached 11 of the athletes, 11 of the athletes in the Australian team, and many successful superstars such as Ralph Dubell, the 1968 Olympic gold medal 800 meters world record holder, and Gail Martin, the 1984 Olympic bronze medal shot put. He also coached other Olympic finals such as Tony Sneeswell, Alan Crawley, and Merv Lincoln, in addition to Commonwealth champions Peter Burks, Sue Holland, and Judy Peckham. He was the Tony, Robert, Tony Robbins of his time. Now, Stomfel was involved in a horrible car accident on Punt Road in 1980, his vehicle being hit while stationary at a traffic light and then was left a quadriplegic. And despite this, he continued the coach from a wheelchair. And in 1981, he was awarded an MBE for services to athletics. And he died in 1995. So just an astonishing story. An astonishing story. And it said that Usain Bolt, who is you know the fastest man on the planet, uses some of the techniques that Stomfel taught. And after conversation with Roger Bannister before he he died, uses a technique. When they ask Usain Bolt, how do you motivate yourself when you're the fastest man in the world? How do you keep going? How do you keep going? Before, of course, he retired, he goes, I just visualize myself breaking the tape or breaking the light with everyone else behind me. So it's just very, very powerful. I'm very excited for this film when it finally hits the decks, hopefully later this year, early next year, whenever... Whenever the journey ends, but I wanted to educate you about this guy because it's just such an amazing story and so few, people, so few people know about him. So rather than jog in the politics as I often do, as I said, I'm going to hold off a little bit. I'm going to talk about a little bit of good news before we, we go away for the week. And one of the things is the job reports around the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia and uh, especially in the in the U.S. because it's so fractured 
with, you know, the 50 states and, you know, the restrictions that are there keeping entrepreneurs, keeping business people from even running while cities burn like Portland burns and Seattle burns and Chicago burns and New York burns and not one Democrat has stood up and condemned it. Oh, as Nancy Pelosi says, oh, some people just do things, but I'm not going to get drawn in. What I am going to talk about is the good and how literally the U.S. economy is like a ball of yarn and we are re- knitting an entire new economy from a brand new ball of ball of yarn companies that were closed before are opening up in different ways that are are authorized and you know learning from online setting up pop-ups completely rejigging and revamping things there's there is no better economic machine than the US machine i'm i still can't get that american patriotism out of me, and every time I see the U.S. flag, even though I'm a dual citizen and love Australia, and God blessed to live here, when I see the U.S. flag, it just—I love it. it. It gets me excited, and because uh, I know Americans will find their way out of any problem. No war, no terrorists, no attack, and no fucking virus is going to beat Americans. It's not going to beat Australians. It's not going to beat British, and it's not going to beat people that love freedom and entrepreneurship. And, and success. And there's going to be so much good that comes out on the other side of this. It's going to be a totally different world. It's never going to go back to the way it was. We are never going to go back to the way we were. One of the few Barbara Streisand movies that I enjoy and a great song, even though Babs has gone TDS level 19. But we are knitting a new world from a new ball of yarn. And I'm very excited for that. And a couple of shout-outs also. Um, we got some great glass storage jars from Minimax, which uh, came with a little note that her order was packed and assembled by Michael. And it was handwritten. And that was kind of like, you know, when as a kid you used to get a pair of pants inside, there was a thing that said, inspected by number 56. Well, who the fuck was number 56? But this is quite personalized. So Michael at Minimax, wherever you are, well done. And the folks at Coco Republic with the best furniture tracking and delivery system um, from Brandt and Michael and Franz and Lucas and everyone because um, we replaced a chair. All the things you can do in, in lockdown. Well done. And a real shout out to all the businesses that are struggling and closed. It absolutely guts me when I walk down the street within my five kilometer radius. Thank you, Dan. Walk down the street. And I see all these closed businesses and the people that are just annihilated. So a shout out and blessings and light to them that hopefully some of them will make it back or come out on the other side. Have faith. Have faith. Thanks to everybody that's been so supportive and subscribing and sharing and all the great notes and feedback I got on uh, the last few shows, especially the amazing international artist Richard Payne last week. It was so well received by artists and uh, non-artists alike. It's great to hear. And a lot of tough times coming ahead. A lot of brilliant times coming ahead. And yep, I still think it's nice to be important, but way more important to be nice. But sometimes you got to take the gloves off if people aren't going to be nice to you. And uh, when you look in the mirror, you got to know what you stand for. And you got to stand for something. doesn't matter what it is. Because if you do and you're steadfast, 
and you believe in yourself, everyone else will believe in you and respect you too. Thanks so much. See you next week.